Welcome to Academically Speaking. This podcast is designed to provide our listeners with an opportunity to engage with subjects and topics related to student academic success. How we think and what we do is important to how we become citizens of this country and of the world. Hello and welcome to Academically Speaking. This is Dr. Theodora Regina Berry, Vice Provost and Dean of the College of Undergraduate Studies. And today our topic is Unleashing Potential, Interdisciplinary Approach to Learning. My guest with me today is Stefan Lunas, who is an interdisciplinary studies major with minors in cognitive science and philosophy. He recently completed a research program with MIT, Welcome, Stefan. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. MIT, that's impressive. Yeah, it's still uh, <laughs> it's still taking a little bit for me to let it all sink in, in all honesty. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But first, uh, talk to me about why you chose interdisciplinary studies as a major. Well, I've been trying to kind of, I've been on a pretty long journey uh, to figure out what education what educational path would probably be most beneficial for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I started out as a biomedical sciences major when I first transferred from Lake Sumter, and then um, I transferred over to a computer science major, but I finally settled in interdisciplinary studies with a minor in cognitive science and philosophy because it just kind of synthesized the ideals that I wanted to touch on and uh, focus on the best so far as far as degrees offered. So when you think about the things that you are passionate about in relationship to your major, um, give me some key words that you would use about what your passions are. Oh, the big hot button issue, AI, uh, artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence is something I'm hugely passionate about as evidenced by like my shirt and um, (laughs) repping the AI UCF club here. Um, And then just a lot of different activities uh, ethics, I think, uh, play a really big background um, in the way I want to approach the world. Coming from immigrant parents from Haiti and Jamaica, respectively, I feel like a lot of the way that I see my own progress um, will always be in proportion to the progress of others around me. Um, and so when I'm in these new spaces like AI and MIT, I always want to think about the ethical ramifications of the technology I'm developing and also the people who are going to just be affected by it in general. That's a, that's a good response, and thank you for sharing that. So as you think about the things that you're passionate about, what kinds of courses do you think have made the greatest impact on your journey, on your academic journey? Ooh, this one's uh, maybe not as loaded as, as I would think, but in all honesty, my philosophy courses. Mm-hmm. My philosophy courses, I was a little, a little hesitant to take because uh, I had always been told growing up that, uh, you know, a philosophy degree may be fun, but it won't get you a, a job that pays very well. <laughs> um, but when I took the courses, uh, it kind of like, a, there was like this electric, like a resonance between me and the material where I realized, oh, it doesn't matter if this paid, I, I love it, you know, and I, you don't have to give me a grade for this, I'll read it regardless. And so that kind of like understanding and like, almost excitement I get from philosophy and the fact that I can see clearly that there are different people who have been thinking the same way I've been thinking or even analogous to the way I've been thinking for hundreds and thousands of years 
and that some of these issues that they've been grappling with, we're still grappling with today, mm-hmm. it kind of gives me some optimism about the current world we live in, that even if we don't have solutions, there are techniques and methodologies out there that can help us get better towards a better world that we're kind of hoping for. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly hope that philosophers and people who study philosophy um, find their way to spaces. I'm a curriculum philosopher by training, and so I read the works of people like John Dewey and John Goodlad, William Pinar, and, and the like, and they're asking questions about knowledge acquisition, knowledge construction, knowledge production, and the value of knowledge in various spaces, and how the context of knowledge changes with different groups of people. Um, and so I, I find that absolutely fascinating. But, you know, I'm that geeky nerd right, <laughs> that asks all those questions, right? Um, and, and I'm proud to be a geeky nerd. Thank you very much. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> so what kinds of activities are you participating in outside of the classroom? Ooh, this is going to be a pretty long one. So first and foremost, I'm the former president of the AIUCF Club, current director of discussions. We actually have a meeting today at Wednesday where we're going over another AI paper. And I've been involved with that group for probably about the past three to three to four years. In addition, there are a few different local activities I try to get involved with. Like before I was doing the fun kind of things I do at MIT now, I was working as a bar back and a bartender, a server and a caterer in the service industry. I like to think that I still have a lot of friends in that community and I carry a lot of those sensibilities and hard work ethic that came from there and it transfers over into what I do now. But explicitly, one of the things I was trying to work on or I, I, I like to work on on the side is a small kind of like bespoke AI may not be the right word for it, but small focused um, interventions into small like uh, local owned businesses and using AI to kind of either help them on the back end or help them in, in a more creative sense. So currently there's... Um, a bar mentor called Handlebar that I used to work at that I'm trying to develop a AI cocktail program for them that takes kind of like the base concepts behind most cocktails uh, from like say a book released in about 2008 called Cocktail Codex that distills kind of any cocktail you have into six different kind of families and formulas and then from there you can kind of use those archetypes and see what ingredients you have in your current space um, and then see what actions are necessary and then use that representation symbolically to kind of generate um, using the current AI we have, specifically the one I play around with is ChatGPT because it's really popular and really robust and using that to kind of get decent to slightly above average recipes. And then with those recipes, we can then taste test them and see which ones are best and then use that kind of for a weekly menu. And then hopefully from that, we can show that like even small interjections with AI into, into local businesses might be beneficial. And that kind of runs directly parallel to the research I was doing up at MIT, where we were taking specifically representations of really rich domains a la cooking and taking them and boiling them down into their like base elements through a really interesting lens. If you've ever played a game like Cooking Mama or Overcooked explicitly is the domain we used. We use PDDL, the Planning Domain and Definition Language, mm-hmm. to represent these actions in a way that a robot conventionally would understand. But it's not about necessarily putting this in a robot, but about the fact that PDDL has this really structured format that we can then use. And then what we ended up doing was taking these Overcooked style recipes, mm-hmm. translating them into PDDL, and then giving them to GPT-3, which then gave it back to us in PDDL, and then testing humans to see, one, how well these generated recipes compared to human-made recipes, mm-hmm. or even a random baseline of just... Uh, my favorite example of a random baseline is 
it's technically possible and feasible, but it's not necessarily something you would want to do. Like we rated it by quality, feasibility, and um, oh, wow, I'm forgetting the last metric. But a good example would be if you take onions, lettuce, tomatoes, you mince them into bits and you put them in a pot, and then you take that pot and you bake it in the oven for five hours, and then you serve it on a cutting board. That's possible, but not very likely. And comparing that random baseline with, say, a pizza with anchovies versus, say, a pizza with anchovies and pineapples, you know, it might be a little easier to tell which one's the human and which one's the AI. But if you do that enough times, you kind of see a bit of a trend. And we then also tested to see how um, those recipes, when shown bit by bit, a la like someone's in the kitchen cooking something, which recipe kind of lines up best with what they believe was being generated. And through that research, we kind of hopefully are tapping into this common structure that these general large language models are uh, training on because they're training on so much information. And hopefully we can pull from these structures kind of these base human biases towards certain recipes or ingredients, and we can kind of learn more about the way we learn. And I kind of want to take that high-end perspective of learning the way about learning the way that we learn from these simple and sometimes complex tools and then taking these applications and putting directly in small business hands and then also taking this information I learn and bringing it back to my community at UCF through the AI UCF club and I and I kind of run the gambit holistically between those three points constantly but there's always going to be some challenges in relationship to an AI developing something from a recipe versus the way an individual will make something. So for instance, you know, in my family, we make conch salad. And one of the key pieces that I've learned about that is that, you know, if you don't have fresh conch, it's never gonna be the same, right? Absolutely. And so I can make it in the Bahamas easily because there's fresh conch. But if I ship that conch from the Bahamas to Miami and then get it to Orlando and then make it, the same ingredients, the same amount of the ingredients, the same process for making it, but it's not going to taste the same. Exactly. Right? As opposed to in baking, because baking is more of an exact science, it's more sort of chemically based in measurements. I could see where an AI could actually take the same set of measurements, the same ingredients, and create something that's precisely the same as if Martha Stewart had baked that cake, right? That's a beautiful perspective, and I agree wholesale. I think when it comes to these representations, uh, when you are doing something like baking, it's like you're saying, it's much more calculation focused and it's much more precise. And even though there's room for error, you might get something more Martha Stewart-esque. But I think that kind of touches in and why when we bring them into human, uh, human, real human situations outside of the research lab, or why we have to tweak these designs a little bit. Because when we take these concepts that are developed in these really beautiful and smart places full of smart people and then release them into the wild without any consideration for like how fresh the conch might be, to take this analogy, then we kind of not only shoot the shoot the chefs in the foot by saying, make this and it's not going to be the best product. You know, we're, we're then assuming in this to run with this analogy that everyone who's providing conch uh, for all these AI recipes is... Uh, understands, how do I phrase this, understands really what they're dealing with. They're not dealing with someone who understands the, the semantic understanding behind the recipe, but instead they understand the novelty of each individual ingredient and how they may pair, which is why like, I really love the cocktail analogy because with cocktails, one, you can taste it really quickly and figure out if it's good or bad. But with cooking, there's so many steps that can go wrong but as, as opposed to cocktails where 
if you're, say, making three different recipes, it may take 10 to 15 minutes versus, say, a few hours for a few different recipes and cooking. But then you can taste test very quickly or even in small samples what works versus what doesn't work because right. as long as you have the human in the loop that improves the process uh, entirely, which is actually kind of how we got to the current chat GPT landscape that we're in right now that people are so excited about because of uh, our... Some all... people are excited about. Oh, some. Yes. Right. But if you talk <laughs> yes. to some of my faculty <laughs> colleagues, uh... they're not so excited about it. But this is where... You know, this notion of interdisciplinarity Absolutely. varies. So depending on your discipline, depending on your perspective, depending on your knowledge base in relationship to that discipline, you will have a particular perspective about the advantages and the assets connected to ChatGPT versus the disadvantages. And so I'm dealing with both of those things as dean because part of my identity as an academic dean with academic programs is about what kinds of things would be beneficial to students in relationship to this learning tool, because I'm seeing it as a learning tool, Absolutely. Point, right? But as an administrative dean who's dealing with academic policy, mm -hmm. the question becomes, what kinds of challenges are we faced with around academic integrity in relationship to students' use of this platform so now I'm seeing it as a platform rather than a learning tool in relationship to student uh, activity and engagement, right? And kind of like the cocktail, it's about the difference between whether or not you're using a potato-based vodka versus a rice-based vodka versus a chemically generated vodka and whether or not it's gonna cause that cocktail to, to taste differently. Incredible subtlety. Uh, and that also opens the door to kind of the interdisciplinary nature of the research inherently and how sometimes um, outside of the areas it's developed that can be lost. Like the labs I work in are Josh Tenenbaum's um, Computational Cognitive Science Lab mm -hmm. as well as uh, Vakash K. Monsingha's uh, Probabilistic Computing Lab. And uh, other than both of those things being a mouthful, most people say uh, instead of Computational Cognitive Science, they call it CocoSci because mm -hmm. it's cuter and it's a little sweeter. Mm -hmm. um, but from its very uh, invent or from its very origin and it's like ethos is so interdisciplinary that uh, it felt like I was moving in a perfect trajectory to where I was supposed to develop when I got a chance to research up there. But taking these tools outside of these like really vast like philosophy, anthropology, uh, linguistics, you know, neuroscience, uh, and even robotic uh, approaches, all within the same lab sitting next to each other, talking to each other and throwing it into the wild and assuming that everyone will also have those contexts this is a little naive. Which is why we need to not only make it more, I guess, more accessible, we need to understand its ability to be used as almost like an equalizing platform, as you're saying. My best comparison is when Wikipedia came out when I was, this might be dating me a bit, um, <laughs> when I came out in um, middle school. And everybody was saying, you can't use it because it's not violent knowledge, Ex right? Exactly. And while ChatGPT... I would say any, for anyone using it uh, either within the academic code or outside of it, um, the accuracy varies wildly um, as someone who's used it in research and outside of research myself. But what's going to get interesting is when they merge with Google Scholar. Of course. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because then you have something that's already been established as valid knowledge in a platform that has some still some controversy attached to it, right? And the way that we get to that point is by exposing people to the tools we have now, ChatGPT, 
and understanding that it's a work in progress. But then the it doesn't just magically. That's a great point. It doesn't magically get from um, ChatGPT to ChatGPT with Google Scholar. People need to develop these tools and integrate. AI is not the point where it's just reaching and grabbing and pulling things in yet. We need to pull it to that to that place. But the only way we get to that place is by making it more equitable, so everyone has not only has access to it beyond like paywalls and things like that, but that everyone has exposure and familiarity with these tools. I want to see a world where people are using AI the same way that like I saw a two-year-old the other day watching and using uh, an iPhone, and I'm like they're doing better than my 100-year-old grandpa on this iPhone. And it's not because that they're just smarter. It's because... It's intuitive. It's intuitive and it moves along with their worldview. Mm -hmm. And we even like specifically in the lab that I'm in, we discuss um, some fundamental con or these concepts that we're kind of uh, dialoguing about, like intuitive physics and intuitive psychology, that from a very young age, we have some fundamentals about the world that we interact with that may be ingrained versus even just say learned. And I feel like if we come in at the right window, we can, for children and even people in college age, like right here and right now in this AI uh, revolution a bit, we can learn to put these tools in the hands of people who won't only just familiarize themselves and get better at using it because, you know, the more the merrier, but specifically um, whenever there's a new technology, um, and this is a bit of my, my favorite soapbox, I guess, I'll stand on it for a moment. Whenever there's a new technology, say railroads, electricity, automobiles, usually uh, what they say up uh, in Cambridge, URM, underrepresented minorities, mm-hmm. tend to be the people who get hit the most. Or just disenfranchised po- mm-hmm. f- folk from the, from the beginning. If you look at the railroads, who's building it? You know, Chinese labor workers. If you're looking at the automobile with Henry Ford, who's building it? You know, children in, in assemblies mm-hmm. and factories. And the same thing happens with AI, where you see people who are um, developing these AI. And they, what, are they, what do we call it? Like the AI white guy problem, where it's like, because of the homogeny of the people within these labs and rooms, usually, mm-hmm. um, luckily my two have been a pretty good exception to that rule, you end up with AI that's not inherently evil or mean or malicious, but looks at but, black people and thinks they're gorillas because they literally haven't been trained enough black faces mm-hmm. because they thought that the celebrity database right. yes. was sufficient enough because they're like, well, I see all these celebrity faces and they're only a few, but that's just the way the world is. It's like, well, the world's pretty large. Right. So... I, we've spent a lot of time Sorry. talking about this. No, but it's been a great conversation. But I want to learn a little bit more about you no, as, as a student and a person. And first of all, getting back to MIT, how did you get to MIT? <laughs> right? What what uh, what opportunity did UCF present to you that afforded you and uh, the chance to study at MIT? This might sound a bit like a wild story, uh, but I'll start. I'll start at the beginning, which was, I think I may have just transferred from biomedical sciences where I was in a class at UCF. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what the class was, but they exposed you to all the different kinds of doctors and different kinds of mm-hmm. medical fields uh, you could like focus and hone in on. And at the last uh, lecture, it was the MD who came and talked about how he had an undergrad degree in, I think, Eastern philosophy, then had to go to mass- get a master's degree and then go to med school and went through a lot of ups and downs. But at 40, he kind of stable- uh, established himself and settled. And I remember him talking about the things he loves doing and how he's using AI and like anomaly detection in lungs and things like that. And I was really excited by what, what he said and he seemed really happy. But then I walked away thinking, wow. I love this, but I don't want to wait till 40 to do the things that I want to do. Um, I think I'll be a pretty decent doctor, but I've been, uh, when I was a kid, well, like from a three years onwards, I'm like, I'm going to be a doctor and a pastor, you know, those two things. And then obviously they deviated a bit. Um, but 
I then immediately transferred to computer science and I didn't really know what to do. No one in my family had done computer science at that point. Um, and so I just went to my local AI club thinking, well, I don't know what, how this works, but I, I got to be in that room where it happens. If this is moving around me, I want to be a part of the process. And from attending those meetings and familiarizing myself, um, I learned that, that every once in a while, a few people from MIT come down and scout in these areas. And they like to look even in like AI UCF and a few different clubs. And then if you meet them and do well with them um, and, you know, have a pretty decent portfolio, they'll be willing to give you an opportunity to do different programs. Uh, Harvard does this as well. But the one that I went to for MIT was the Massachusetts Summer Research Program, specifically within bio, because computational cognitive science falls within cognitive science, but it falls within the broader category of BCS, the biological sciences. Um, and that opportunity came by um, work, working service jobs for a long time mm -hmm. until eventually, through my connections to the AI club, I was able to do AI and ML at um, uh, photovoltaic, so solar energy, through the Florida Solar and Energy um, Center, which is based out of, uh, uh, this, uh, this, I guess, what, the Sun Coast, but specifically out of UCF as well. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Hubert uh, Smith, uh, incredible mentor, helped develop my skills to be a good researcher so that when they came down the next year, I got to interview and talk and they're like, you have the credentials, you have the letters of rec, let's give you a shot. And then once I got up there, I learned so much that they just kept letting me come back. They're like, oh, you want to come back for the fall? Sure. You want to stay a little bit longer in January? That's okay. Um, and they've just been so conducive to me that like, um, even though I didn't feel like I would have ever had a chance to do the GPA requirement, the once I developed kind of my base down here, mm -hmm. it gave me a foundation to build my confidence and my skill set enough that they acknowledge what I had done. If the, hopefully that answers the question oh, well. absolutely, absolutely. So outside of the classroom, you mentioned you're in the AI UCF club and you're doing a few other things. So what advice would you give to your fellow students about why you participate in student organizations, why you do research, and, and why you took advantage of the opportunity to study at UCF. What advice would you give to your fellow students? Ooh, um, one, don't let your GPA scare you away from doing something you think might be really beneficial. Um, a lot of the times they'll say in paper that they have a hard requirement, but if you meet with someone and talk with someone in dialogue, usually they might either be a little more lenient or understand your circumstance. Once I explained um, my own individual uh, situation, paying my way through school, there, it became a lot more clear that it wasn't that I was some bad student, but that uh, there were adversities you have to face in life, and they definitely can be empathetic towards that. Um, in addition, just seeing options and pursuing them, I think is incredible. It may feel as though the goal you're setting out to accomplish is unreachable or too far-fetched, but as long as you're putting yourself in, the situa in, in situations and scenarios where other people are achieving these goals, you're most likely going to acquire not only the tools and the techniques, but the mentality that allows you, and as weird as this may sound, the language that allows you to move in and out of these spaces mm -hmm. and allow you to not only be accepted, but to thrive in these situations. Absolutely. Okay. So now this is the fun part of our conversation, <laughs> which is what I call the speed round. I'm just going to I'm gonna ask you a set of questions. You answer me with the things that come to the top of your head. Okay? All right. Favorite color? Uh, red. <laughs> Favorite song? Ooh, um, ooh, that's hard. I, I'm a, 
maybe Rubber Band Man by um, The Spinners because I loved oh it as a kid. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> You're an old soul. Yes, very okay. much so. <laughs> All right. Uh, favorite movie? Ooh, I probably, oh wow. Either Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I saw recently, or um, perhaps Fight Club, not necessarily for the current connotations mm-hmm. it has, but because I was 12 and it blew my mind with a twist and I'm like, wait, what? And that stuck with me to this day. <laughs> Favorite TV show? Ooh, um, I love comedy. Oh, so maybe Community or even like um, Abbott Elementary, but The Good Place is probably my favorite TV show mm-hmm. because um, if you can't see me through cam- uh, uh, through the audio, I do look a little bit like Chidi from The Good Place. Yeah. And I have yeah. a lot of the same anxious and philosophical quandaries. Um, <laughs> so I get called Chidi a lot. Favorite actress? Ooh, favorite actress. Oh. Oh, wow. I always used to say Meryl Streep just because of her range and the, mm-hmm. and the lack of Oscars she deserves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll stick with that. Okay, absolutely. Um, favorite thing to do in your free time? Ooh, currently play bass guitar. That or occasionally play video games. Okay. What's your favorite video game? Ooh. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, anything, uh, a really good RPG or anything in this genre called um, roguelikes where you're playing um, a game and then you die a lot and then you get brought back like Hades or Slay the Spire. Um, I think there's a, or, or Elden Ring. Um, there's a really visceral response I have to playing a game, losing, and it's saying, don't worry, losing's part of the process and then continuing along. And, I'm, and it kind of gives me the satisfaction that I also get from my education career where I'm like, all right, there will be losses, but you get stronger for it at the end yes. of the day. Yes. All right, and so I'm going to end this interview with a question that um, I'm taking from a TV show that I've been watching recently called If We're Being Honest with Laverne Cox. Oh, I love Laverne Cox. She's awesome. So um, at the end of her interview, she typically asks her guest if there was something that she should have asked that she didn't ask. So I'm going to ask you, was there something that I didn't ask that I should have asked? Ooh. That's, ooh, that's a heavy one. I don't think there's anything I can think of that you should have asked that, uh, or that you could have asked that you should have asked. If I have to speak of anything more that I would have wanted to be prompted on, oh, um, I, uh, my family uh, means the world to me, um, and I literally wouldn't be here without them, or like my mentor, Tanji Shen, up at um, MIT, or just any of the people who, I guess the question would be, who got you to this point? Because mm. I can't think about where I am right now without thinking about every single person who got me to this point. I literally just celebrated my, this is definitely dating me, my 30th birthday two days ago. Oh, and, hey, happy birthday. Oh, thank you, thank you. And all I could think about was how many various different groups of people, you know, ups and downs made me who I am. Uh, and I'm so grateful for the place I'm at right now. And that is a great way to end our conversation. Thank you for joining us today thank on you for Academically me be here. Speaking. Um, and thanks to our audience for joining us. This is Dr. Theodora Regina Berry with Academically Speaking, and have a great day. <laughs>